If you would stand with me and we'll read the scripture for this morning. We're going to be turning to uh, Acts chapter 2, and there's going to be several different verse sections that we'll be walking through with that. But we'll start in Acts 2, starting uh, verses 1 through 4. Then the day of Pentecost arrived. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were seating. Then divided tongues as a a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in each other in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They're going to move to verses 12 through 18. And as they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked and said, They are filled with wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on the flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall see dreams. And even my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And then we'll be reading verses 33 through 47. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that this you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel before you know that certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, so that those who receive his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad, generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Maybe seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning and excited about what God has to teach us this morning through his word. And uh, before we go there, uh, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer and then we'll dive in here to our study. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your great name. We thank you that you are God in heaven. 
that you are the Holy One, that you are the Lord Most High, that you are mighty in power. Father, it's to you we pray this morning. Lord, we've been meeting together as a church for over nine years now. And we've gone through many trials, many ups and downs. People have come, people have gone, but through it all, your word has remained the same. It's unchanging, and therefore it can be trusted, just like you can be trusted. Father, we thank you for the joy of knowing that we serve a risen Savior, that we have a resurrected Jesus, no longer dead, but alive. Died once to sin, raised to life, and now he's poured out his spirit in us. And you've called us, your people, to be operating with this abundant life. You've said in your word that death now has no sting. And so as we look to your word today, pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see your truths and grant us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches And yes, Lord, give us ears, we pray, to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church, to your church here at Hope in Christ. Help us spend our days pleasing you. And as a church, see that we shine brightly for others to see that they too might know you, Father, and praise your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. I was reminded this week, growing up watching a lot of westerns, even to this day my parents still like to watch westerns. Any of you watch any westerns at any time? The old black and whites now. And you you might remember something like this. Um, Oftentimes nailed to a, a trunk of a tree, right? Wanted, got the, got the mug shot of, of the latest criminal who's, who's come to town. Usually there's some kind of reward affixed to the wanted sign. Wanted, dead or alive. I was thinking about that this week as I was looking to uh, the scripture because in many ways, I believe that the church perhaps, has posted a similar sign. A sign that says wanted, dead, or alive, and the inference there being spiritually speaking. Uh, You might have heard the phrase, come as you are. Well, come as you are. I don't know that God's necessarily turned off by come as you are as much as he is. Come as you are and stay just as you are. Has the church somehow bought a lie that it's okay to just come, dead or alive, we'll take whoever, fill up a chair? Is that what God has intended for his church? I would want you to know this morning that the church of Jesus Christ is alive to God and dead to sin. Um, that's from Romans chapter 6, by the way. Alive to God, dead to sin. That's characteristic of the church of Jesus Christ. 
When you come in here on a Sunday, on a Lord's Day, are you coming to hear from God's Word? Are you coming to learn? Are you being challenged to adjust your old ways of thinking to that of God's Word? Not to what Steve says necessarily, but to what God is saying in His Word. Are we willing to adjust our ways of thinking, our old patterns of thinking? In fact, I'll say as a side note, oftentimes our old ways of thinking have gotten us into a lot of trouble, truth be told. Are we willing to adjust to what God has to say? And is the church exhorting one another to this end? Is sanctification, that's a fancy word for being set apart to God. Is sanctification happening in the life of the church? Does it matter whether the church is set apart to God or not? Does it matter whether they're spiritually alive or spiritually dead or not? Has the church operated as though being dead or alive is optional? What is it to be dead? What is it to be alive? Those are the two questions I want to address this morning from the Word. What is it to be dead? What is it to be alive? And understanding that the church of Jesus Christ means... What it's about from the word is that we are alive, people who are alive to God, dead to sin. So I'd like to show you from God's word the difference between the two. I want you to see that there's a vast difference between dead and alive. As you sit here this morning, you probably can come up with some ideas and examples of your own of, yeah, dead and alive. Big, big difference. Huge difference. You need to know that you can't have it both ways here. The Bible says you cannot serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, right? You're going to serve the one, you're going to neglect the other. And while I'm talking to the church as a whole, I believe it's important that you understand something up front. I'm also talking to you as individuals. Each one of you who professes the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm addressing these words to you this morning. If you call Hope in Christ your church home this morning, these words are coming your way. Sort of like a direct hotline delivery, express shipping, expedited shipping. It's coming. It's coming right now. And some of the things that are coming might not feel very good to hear. But I believe they're necessary words, significant words for us as a church to embrace and get a handle on and see what God has to say. Remember that the church is not a building, but it is a people. Amen? Church is not a building. Church is a people. A redeemed, we defined this a few weeks back, a redeemed community of called out ones, saints. We don't oftentimes use the word we, we, we attach that to maybe some other ways of thinking, but uh, the reality is, uh, if you're in Christ, you are a saint. A saint is a holy one, someone who is set apart to God. That's the basic definition. A community of redeemed, called out ones. Commu- this, this group of people is consumed with giving God glory in all things, all the way to the finish line. 
right? Giving God, that's what we're consumed with. Giving God glory. We are here, why? To give God glory and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. That's the big picture of why we're here. See, the church is characterized by people who have crossed the line with two feet, not trying to straddle, but the, the two feet across, committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is loyal to her master, willing to walk in his commandments, willing to speak his truth, willing to, yes, even suffer for his name's sake. Paul says to Timothy, everyone who is godly will suffer persecution. We don't like that verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Nevertheless, it's truth. See what I'm saying about earlier, adjusting our way of thinking? We have to adjust our way of thinking to what God has to say. Let's begin with what it is to be dead. And we'll end with the good news of what it is to be alive. So what is it to be dead? You know, we've been in this series. This is the, the week two in, in the series. We started last week with a resurrected Jesus. The series is called Resurrected. And we're talking about resurrected churches today. Resurrected churches. And when we even put the name out there, it probably raises a few questions. I know it did for me as I thought about the term resurrected church. Isn't the church a life-giving station? And doesn't resurrection imply something has been dead? We put those together, resurrected church. Is it possible to have a dead church? That was one of the first questions I wrote on the board this week as I'm looking at this. Is it possible to have a dead church? Is it possible that this church is dead? Wow, that gets a little closer to home, doesn't it? See, it's somewhat easy to talk about the church, big, capital C. But when we start talking about lowercase c, uh, we start to, maybe our heart goes a little, a little faster. We start thinking about things, maybe. Is this true? What about us? What's he have to say about this? I think what we find out here. And then how does the church arrive? How does the church ever arrive at being dead? How do you get there? If it's possible that the church is dead, how does it get there? How does the church arrive at such a place? How does a life-giving station become a place where there's no life? I'd like to share with you from the scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, because it's all God's word, right? It's all God's word. And yes, we read more in the New Testament about his church, no doubt about it, absolutely. Acts 2 was read this morning for a reason. I'd like to give you one word, just a baseline word, reason for how the church can be dead. Let me give you one word. And we're going to kind of explore this one word here for a moment. Neglect. Neglect. How is it that the church becomes dead? Neglect. The Hebrew writer uses similar words to capture this idea of neglect. In chapter 5, verse 11, 
he uses a phrase of the, the people have become dull of hearing. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 12, he uses the word sluggish. Same idea, concept. Hebrews 2, verse 1 says, We must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we, what? Drift away. How shall we escape, he asks, if we neglect so great a salvation? There's the word, neglect. How shall we escape if we neglect so great? Mark talked about that salvation. His great love toward us. You know, I don't believe for a moment that the church makes plans to die, to become dead. I don't believe that that any church marks its calendar and sets a date for when they're going to close the door. I, I don't know of any churches who intentionally set out to be called dead. And yet it happens, doesn't it? Churches close their doors all the time. In fact, you you hear stories and reports about over in Europe, church doors are closing all over the place. People stop coming. Some for good reasons, perhaps. Others leave the church looking for someone to scratch their itch. They're seeking out teachers that will teach them what they want to hear. They're not interested in adjusting their way of thinking to God's word. It's what stokes the fires of their fluctuating happiness. Listen, dead churches ought not be. For the sake of the Lord, dead and church don't go together. Amen? They don't go together. They ought not go together. And that should show up even in the way, just a practical way, that we come into his house... On a Sunday, when we open up the hymnal and when we sing praises to God, we lift our voices to God. Some of you say, I don't have a good voice. Say, God gave you that voice. We praise him with what he's given to us. Amen? We praise him. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people of God. To proclaim the one who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So if neglect is a primary contributor to deadness in the church, in what ways does the church exhibit neglect? In our time this morning, we're not going to exhaust this by any means. But I'm hoping to give you at least a beginning place to start here. Here's the first one. It's a neglect of God's house. A neglect of God's house. A dead church has neglected the house of God. And and to this point, I, I, I turn to Haggai the prophet Haggai the prophet, Old Testament prophet. And in Haggai chapter 1, he says this phrase twice to the people of God. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. What's he getting at? In chapter 1 verse 4 he says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses in this temple to lie in ruins? A few verses later, he says, bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Verse 9, he says, my house is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. And some of you might say, well, we don't have a house of our own. We're, we're currently not building a house. This is not an issue here at Hope in Christ. 
And I would respond by looking at the other side of the equation. You see, because in Haggai chapter 1, he's not only exhorting the people to contribute to the building of the, the, the temple, but he's also pointing his finger on the people's consuming thoughts. Taking care of their own homes. Taking care of their own needs. You know, in some ways, Haggai is addressing, even back then, the spirit of independence. Listen, independence is not defined as taking care of your family's needs. We're called in the Bible to take care and provide for our family's needs. Amen? We're called to do that. Independence... And the independent spirit of the day has to do with being absorbed, being consumed in your own family's needs. It's like the horse. You've seen the horse that has blinders on. All, all, the, all it sees is right here. It's all, it's all it sees. See, the people in Haggai's day were not just neglecting the building and maintenance of God's house... But they were spending excessive amounts of time on their own stuff. Neglecting the house of God can contribute to a dead church. Now, if we're consumed with taking care of our house, our families, our needs, our stuff, our own inner circle, yeah, we might get our needs met, but what about God's house? What about God's people that make up that house? How are we providing care for one another in the body of Christ? Do we merely attend God's house on a Sunday morning and throughout the week think very little of it? Does coming to a building on Sunday morning make the church alive? Do we arrive at alive by just coming on a Sunday morning? How else can God's house get neglected? One simple way is this lack of participation. A lack of participation. How many of you know we have a church webpage? Anybody know? We do. Hopeinchristchurch.net, right? You can, you can go on there. It's, a, it's a still a work in progress. We're just about ready. We're finalizing a couple things. We're going to get that done. But right now you can get on. You can actually, men, you can actually engage and participate something on a Sunday morning. I'm just giving you some practical things as we think about what it is to neglect God's house. Have we just said, I'm going to let somebody else do it. I'm okay with somebody else doing it. Listen, a dead church comes ill-prepared. A dead church comes expecting someone else to lead. A dead church comes together primarily to consume. And back in the day, you might remember this in the Old Testament, God's people were required to come to Jerusalem three times for feasts. Remember that? They were all traveling to Jerusalem. And the Bible says that they were not to come empty-handed. We neglect God's house when we come empty-handed. When we come not ready to give him praise. When we come, not ready to give a testimony of what God's doing in our life. I'm not even speaking to finances, church. That's not what I'm speaking to here primarily. 
Speaking to a heart and a mind that's engaged to serve the Lord. Are we coming ready to hear God's word? Are we coming ready to serve one another? Are we coming ready to do whatever we can to show the love toward one another that was spoken of already this morning? What are you bringing with you when you come? And have you been neglecting the house of God in any way? It's a good question for us all to think through. How else does the church exhibit this neglect? Not only by neglecting the house of God, God's house, but neglect of God's name. That's the second one. Neglect of God's name. A dead church neglects his name. Malachi, the prophet, the last Old Testament prophet. In chapter 1, read Malachi chapter 1. And then you read Malachi chapter 1, and you're going to come to find out that God says this about himself. I am a great king. I'm a great king. Chapter 1 verse 6 says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, God says, where is my honor? And if I am a master, God says, where is my reverence? A great king, church, deserves our very best. Amen? A great king deserves our very best. And I would ask you this morning, church, are you giving God your very best? Malachi, through the Lord, is putting his finger on a problem going on with God's people. And it's a problem that's still going on in today's church. It's called neglect of God's name. The Ten Commandments says it this way. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, we oftentimes associate that particular commandment with using foul language when God's name is in it. And rightly so, that's a proper use of that commandment. But is it not also the case that we can use his name in vain when we belittle him, when we profane his name? What is it to profane God's name? It's to treat his name as common or ordinary. You ever treated God's name in that way? Common, ordinary. How often does the church treat God's name as common, as no big deal? We see in Malachi chapter 1, God says to the people, Hey, I'd rather you shut the doors of the place than to offer half-hearted offerings on my altar. He says, My name shall be great among the nations, but you profane it by what you bring. Are you neglecting the name of God with your words, with what you speak? Are you neglecting God's name by living a life, listen, by living a life inconsistent with your testimony? Romans 2.24, Paul says, the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Talking to the Jews. The ones who thought they had it all together. Ezekiel 36.22 God tells Ezekiel the prophet to say to the house of Israel, I do this, I'm going to rescue you, I'm going to bring you back, I'm going to restore you, but I do this not for your sake, O Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. 
Are you neglecting God's name in any way right now? See, a dead church neglects the name of God in both word and deed. He's treated as no big deal. And yet the testimony is God himself says, I am a great king. A dead church neglects her king. How else does the church exhibit this neglect? Third, a neglect of God's word. A neglect of his house. A neglect of his name. A neglect of his word. A dead church neglects the word of God. Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 6, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Behold, listen, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. A few verses later in Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 17, 16 and 17. Jeremiah 6. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, listen to what they said. We will not walk in it. Also, I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. We will not walk in it. We will not listen. And you read Jeremiah the prophet and you find out that everyone from the greatest to the least had neglected the word of God. Priests and prophets, they were teaching falsehood. And worse, the people delighted in it. We read in Jeremiah the prophet that the word was neglected. Truth perished. The people went backward, not forward. A dead church neglects the word of God. And not just in the gathering on the Lord's day, friends. What place is given in your home to God's word? What place is given for the word of God in your own life as a child of God, as a part of the body of Christ? Let me give you one other area of neglect. It's the neglect of responsibility. The neglect of his house, the neglect of his name, the neglect of his word, and the neglect of responsibility. A dead church neglects responsibility to function and work as God has called and gifted them to work. The end of Ephesians 4, that wonderful passage of the church, talks about the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Every joint, every part does its share. Seems that the church at Sardis... So I was reading and studying this week. The church at Sardis in Revelation 3 neglected responsibility in this arena of every part doing its work. Revelation chapter 3 verse 4 says, and this is, by the way, if you have a red letter edition, these are all red letters because Jesus is speaking these words to these churches. Here's what he has to say to the church at Sardis. Revelation 3, verse 4. You have a few names, you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
Now listen, their deeds don't make them worthy, but their deeds represent one following Jesus. Let's be clear, okay? It's not works-based salvation. But he's saying, these are the ones that are worthy to wear white. These are the ones worthy of, of my name. They're walking with me. An ambassador of Christ is one who spreads the name of Christ. He gives off the aroma of Jesus. And these few here in Sardis are worthy because they look like what they profess to be. Did you get that? They look like what they profess to be. They look genuine, transparent, real. One look at their lives and you can tell that these folks have been with Jesus. Do people know that you've been with Jesus? See, characteristic of a dead church is those who neglect responsibility to walk in obedience. Those who fail to follow in the path of Jesus. Those who are content with something other than working out their salvation, the Bible says, with fear and trembling. Because of this great king that we serve. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works, church at Sardis, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There it is. Is it possible for a church to be dead? I think I just answered the question. Or maybe I'll say it this way. I think Jesus just answered the question. Yes, it is possible. You have a name that you're alive, but Jesus says, you are dead. Imagine Jesus walking among the church here at Hope in Christ. And by the way, that's exactly the picture you get in Revelation 1. He's, he's circulating among the lampstands, representative of the churches. He's making his way. He's making his rounds. He's seeing what's going on. Imagine him walking in your home throughout the week. Children, imagine him in your rooms when you're in your rooms all by yourself. Imagine him watching over your shoulder as you are on the computer. He's watching. He's taking in whether you acknowledge his presence at the beginning of a day, at the end of the day. He's watching to see whether you really do trust in him or whether you trust in yourself. He's watching to see how valuable he is in your life. He's perhaps asking, am I really the treasure that he professes me to be? Am I really that pearl of great price that she professes me to be? What might Jesus see if he walked through the life of this church here at Hope in Christ? What would he say about our works? Would he declare us to be dead or alive? Would he see a church, a building, open on Sundays, but a church in many ways absent from the Lord Monday through Saturday? See, as one who knows the hearts I think it's helpful here for us, and this is the picture we get in Revelation 1, to imagine for just a moment his eyes like flaming fire blazoned on this body. 
And as those eyes of flaming fire are emblazoned on this body, imagine that they are passing by you for just a moment. What's he see? You know, I read Revelation 3 and I ask the question, how is it that only a few are walking with Jesus? Neglect. Just a few. There are only a few walking with Jesus. There are only a few in Sardis who hadn't defiled their garments. Sardis, by the way, was situated in a pretty strategic location, some 1,500 foot up, citadel. Pretty secure place, at least so they thought. History tells us that on two different occasions, Sardis was overtaken. Once by Cyrus, and once two, three hundred years later by Antiochus. But it seems to be, as you study the history of Sardis, that there's a pattern on how this city was overthrown. You see, they were situated high up on this hill, thought to be an impregnable defense. But both times, the enemy found a way through during the night and discovered the same thing. Here's what they found. No watch. No one was guarding the place. No protection. No watchman. God has placed elders in his church to watch over the flock. But each part of the body is called to be watchful. That's what it says in Revelation 3, to be watchful. In New Testament terminology, we might say that we've been given the whole armor of God. And we are called to put on the armor that God's given us as his children. It's suited to fit God's children. His armor is suited for us, for all that we need. And we're called to put it on to remain watchful. We're called to put it on to hold fast to the truth. Put it on to guard our heart. Put it on to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Put it on to renew our minds that we might think rightly. That we might adjust our way of thinking. Put it on so you can take your stand against the schemes of the evil one. You see, neglect of responsibility is to let your guard down. It's arriving at a place like those in Sardis where you think you're safe. Where you think you're protected from all harm. It's the thought that you are untouchable. No one's going to hurt me. It's taking pride in my favorable position. That seems to be the case for the church at Sardis. The dead church neglects God's house, God's name, God's word. And the dead church neglects responsibility and lets down her guard for the enemy to just come rushing in. You have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Well, what is it to be alive? What is it? Let's spend just a moment here talking about what is it to be alive. Acts 2 is a great place to turn for some answers, at least initially. When we think about what is it for a church to be alive. It's the beginning of the church. You know, when something starts up, it's oftentimes loaded with excitement, loaded with energy, loaded with lots of passion. 
And friends, you see that in Acts 2, don't you? It's there. The beginning of the church, the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, feast day. Lots of people in town. The church is seen as vibrant, life-giving. A buzz has filled the streets of Jerusalem about the church of Jesus Christ and these people. There's something about these people. Uh, the people are, are outside and they're looking at these people called the church. And they're seeing these people actually are taking serious their witness to Jesus. People came together under the name of Jesus and they rejoiced in the Lord. They worshiped together. They ate meals together. They enjoyed the favor of one another. They shared their possessions with one another. They saw needs and they met those needs as they could. And where the church became aware of needs, the church sacrificed and they stepped in and ministered however they could see. They made sure no one lacked. And daily the church is seen in the temple praising God together, sharing their hearts together, doing life together. The church devoted themselves to four things. You remember this in Acts chapter 2, it's there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God. And keep in mind that the apostles were teaching them having been eyewitnesses of Christ himself. Isn't that amazing? The apostles' teaching, they were devoted to that. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. They were devoted to prayers. They were devoted to fellowship, koinonia, sharing in common the thing that they had, which was Jesus Christ. Not drawing up walls and dividing lines of what separates them, but rallying around the very thing that unified them, and that was Jesus Christ. What is it to be alive? How can you tell whether a church is alive? I believe this, that the presence of the Holy Spirit is evident. Alive is the presence of the Holy Spirit evident. The Bible tells us that the Spirit is life. The principle of the Spirit is that He brings life. He is a life giver. We talked about last week about that, the pile of bones. Remember that, Ezekiel? What was it that brought those bones to life? It was the, the life that, that was breathed into them. It goes all the way back even in the book of Genesis when God is making man from the dust of the ground. And Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says that he breathed into the nostrils into that first man and he became a what? A living being. Life. When the Spirit comes down here in Acts 2, he brought life to men. So a marker of the church then is a body of believers filled with the presence of of the Holy Spirit, whereby something unmistakable happens. There's life evident. The Spirit of God living, dwelling among His people. And you know, when you read through the first eight chapters of the book of Acts, it, it brings home again the early stages of the church. Read those first pages and you start to see life pulsating, pulsating, pulsating. Life, life throughout the members in that church community. They were all about Jesus. The apostles get arrested on a couple different occasions early on, and the council marveled at their witness, recognizing these men to have been with Jesus. These men have been with Jesus. These men have been with Jesus. The book of Acts is really more about the acts of the Holy Spirit than the acts of the apostles, isn't it? It's really the acts of the Holy Spirit working in and through those apostles and others. 
It's the work of the Spirit moving. A church that's alive is a church filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Do you know this morning the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? If not, have you asked the Father in prayer? I would encourage you to do so because he is a good father. He's a giver of good gifts. And he will not withhold his spirit from those who ask. How else can you tell whether the church is alive? Let me give you one other one. Not only the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, but receptivity to hear God's word, which results in walking in the light. Receptivity to hear God's word. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This is the end of Peter's sermon on that day of Pentecost in Acts 2, verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? When they heard what? What'd they hear? They heard the word preached. It says they were cut to the heart. What's that mean? It means they were pierced. It means they were pricked. The idea has in mind It's used of a painful emotion which penetrates the heart as if stinging. They were cut to the heart. The word they heard that day stung. A good majority of these people who were listening to Peter's words were Jewish people. And Peter is speaking to them and prophesying saying, hey, this is what Joel long ago talked about. You want to know what all this is about? Joel the prophet spoke about this and said that this day was going to come. In these last days, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Men and women, young and old, will will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He goes on and talks about David, the prophet. He refers to him as David, the prophet, the one whose line and lineage would lead to the Christ. And And Peter's preaching this to a Jewish audience, and he's saying, the one you crucified, the one you murdered on the tree, Jesus, that is the Messiah. This is the one God raised from the dead. Him you killed. God raised him up from the dead. And when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. It stung there was a realization that set in that they had either actively or passively been a part of sinning against God, crucifying the Lord and Christ. Those are the references in the the passage. When's the last time you heard God's word this way? Either heard or, or read something. You're reading God's word, and it's cut you to the heart. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and powerful. This is what the word is, friends. It penetrates and cuts, divides, judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's what the word does. All for good because he wants to transform us into the image of his son. 
And he's been gracious to give to us his word. Acts 2.33 speaks to the role of Jesus, therefore being exalted, that was Jesus, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. He poured out, Jesus poured out that which you now see and hear. He received from the Father, the Father and the Son, tag team, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, okay? He's poured out what you now, Peter says, what you now see and hear. See, the people heard some things And they were confused. They saw some things and they were wondering what is going on. And Jesus, Peter says, is the one who's poured out these things that they now see and hear. They saw the evidence of the Spirit at work. They heard the evidence of the Spirit working in the lives of the apostles. And Acts 2.37 tells us the response then of God's word. This is not only the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, This is not only the beginning of the church. But friends, this is the pattern for saving faith. Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by what? Word of God. That's the pattern. Romans 10 verse 17. That's the pattern for saving faith. Faith comes by hearing God's word. It's that simple. I think we've made it a lot harder than what it needs to be. The people not only heard, but they were pierced to the core that day. And as a result of their humble surrender, an honest question comes about in verse 37. What what needs to happen? (laughs) In light of what we just heard, what do we need to do? Tell us. It's sort of like the jailer. Remember the jailer in in Acts 16? He's ready to kill himself because there's a big earthquake that happens. And Paul and Silas are singing praises. All of a sudden, earthquake at midnight. And And the jailer thinks that all the prisoners are going to scatter and they're all going to leave. And Paul says, wait, 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 don't go anywhere. We're not leaving. And the jailer, something happened in those brief moments. And the jailer said, brothers, what must I do to be saved? What what do I need to do? I believe the jailer was cut to the heart. What do I need to do? Believe in the Lord. You and your household believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, the church that's alive embraces two commands and two promises that are right here in Acts 2. Let's get this. Two, two commands, two promises. Here they are. What's true for the early church, still true today. These, these commands, these promises are still true today. Here's command number one. Command number one, repent. Acts 2.38. It's the first thing he says. What do I need to do? Repent. Repent. A change of mind, a change of direction. Uh, James McDonald in his book, uh, talking about act like men. That's the title of his book, I believe it is. And in there he has some, I think, very helpful uh, uh, rendering for us in terms of what it is to repent. He says repentance, if we're, if we're ever going to change from dead to alive, all change begins with a change of mind that the Bible calls Repentance. It says repentance is detecting and destroying the rationalizations that led you to checking the sinful box in the first place. He says repentance is not a one-time event for the forgiveness of sins and gift of eternal life, but repentance is instead a lifetime pattern of humility before a holy God. He says we never leave the road of repentance. 
He goes on and says the purpose of continuing or continuous repentance is what the Bible calls sanctification. This is so good. Listen to this. He says, repentance is the choice to embrace the Holy Spirit's daily work of convicting us about ongoing sin. I'll say that again. The purpose of continuous repentance is what the Bible calls sanctification. He says repentance is the choice to embrace the Holy Spirit's daily work of convicting us, adjusting if need be, right? Convicting us about our ongoing sin. That's the role of the Spirit, isn't it? To convict us of sin. So that's the first command, repent. What's the second command? Acts 2.38. Be baptized. Be immersed. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've not yet been baptized. We want you to know this morning, he calls you to be baptized. In the name of Jesus, be baptized. Be washed. Be cleansed. The baptism doesn't save you. But I do believe that the baptism in and of itself is our first act of obedience to his grace of saving us in our life. So, repent, be baptized. What are the two promises? Promise number one, you receive remission or forgiveness of sins. Repentance precedes forgiveness, friends. And forgiveness is necessary for what we know in the Bible to be called salvation. Right? They they all go together, hand in hand. The promise to receive forgiveness of sins. And promise number two, the promise to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.41 tells us that some 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. And Acts 2.47 tells us that daily the Lord was adding to the church. Life. Kent Hughes in his book on Acts, he, he, he writes, he asks this question. He says, why was Peter's first sermon so great? You ever thought about that? Why is his first sermon so great? And he says, both Peter and the sermon were full of Christ, full of scripture, and full of the Holy Spirit. I say amen to that. That's true. He goes on, he says, the hearers, all those people who were listening, the hearers' emptiness made way for their fullness. As 3,000 believed in Christ and were saved, he says, for them the sermon was great because it led them to a supreme Savior. It was great because it led them to a Savior. What about you and me? He was asked the question, he said, have we heard in the same way that the 3,000 heard on that day? Have we heard in that way? Do we have ears to hear God's word? Do we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church? We ought to desire to hear a sermon, not primarily so we can add notes into our notebook. But how much better it is to hear a sermon that we know is great. Here's how we know it's great. Listen. Because of what it does to us. What's it do to you? What is it doing? When you hear God's word preached, when you read God's word, what is it doing to you? When Jesus spoke to the church at Sardis, he called them to strengthen the things that remain, things that were about to die, frankly. They were about to die. He says, be watchful, be warned. He says, remember how you received, remember how you heard Hold fast. And then he says, repent. 
And in nearly all of the letters to those churches in Revelation, there's this call to repent, to turn around, to change the mind. Remember that he's writing these words to the church. Not to pagans. To the church. And in Sardis, only a few had not defiled their garments. The majority were led to believe were operating in sin. What about hope in Christ? To move from a state of deadness to aliveness requires step one, step one, step one, repentance. Repentance of sin, a spirit of humility, going low, uh, being, as Jesus says, poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. This morning, I'd like to ask you whether or not you're dead or alive, spiritually speaking. The promise of forgiveness is available to you, to all who are afar off. The promise of the Holy Spirit coming into your life is also available for the asking. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise, friends. Psalm 51. First steps to walking together alive in God. Repent, be baptized, pray, confess your sins to God. Confess your sins Say the same thing that God says about your sin. Confess that to God. Get this word in you. And be about exhorting one another in the body. Building each other up. Edifying one another. John chapter 1 verse 4 talks about the word. Jesus says, in him was life. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus makes possible resurrected living. Jesus makes possible life among his church. Dead is not an option for the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Dead is not an option. I was reminded of that scene near the end of Facing the Giants. Anybody ever seen the movie? Football movie. Bobby Lee Duke's got that big, huge, giant sucker in his mouth. And he's on the sideline and he's yelling and screaming at his players because they were the bigger team. They were the team that was supposed to win. They they were supposed to squash the other team. They had three times the number of players in the other team. And on this particular occasion, he's called a timeout and he's rallied his team together and he's yelling and screaming. And they had already settled for a field goal earlier in the game and he tells them, field goals are not an option. I thought about that. I thought, you know what? How is it that the church of Jesus Christ has settled for, at best, kicking field goals? Kicking field goals. When all the while, Jesus died that we might be scoring six, scoring touchdowns, scoring victories, getting in the end zone for the name of Jesus Christ. Have we settled for field goals or have we just settled for running a few plays, not knowing exactly what we're doing, but just running some plays, hoping things will turn out? If we were to change this sign, I believe the first part we would we'd keep the same. Wanted. Here's what Christ wants. He wants a church that's dead to sin. And alive to himself. That's what he wants. Dead to sin. Alive to God. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God for the victory that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given to us through your son Jesus. Lord, this really is simple. In terms of how we become a child of yours. The road is difficult though. And because there are so many around us heading a different direction, it seems. Professing a different name. Living in this spirit of of independence that we talked about. Not concerned about your name. Not concerned about your house. Not concerned about your word. Neglecting the responsibilities that you've given to them while here on earth. Father, we thank you that you have given life to us through your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us the opportunity to receive and hear your word that we might be saved. Lord, if there are some here today who need to hear your word, I pray, Father, that they would hear that they too would be cut to the heart over what you have spoken in your word. Father, there may be some in here today who are already saved. But, but perhaps have never really truly been cut to the heart as they've opened your word, as they've seen what you have to say. They've never really thought about adjusting their way of thinking, adjusting their old patterns to walk in this newness of life that you've called for. But Father, I pray as a church here at Hope in Christ, we would be a people, a redeemed community that walk together dead to sin Encouraging one another to be dead to sin, reconciling, reckoning ourselves dead to sin, but alive to you, God, through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who died, who was buried, was resurrected. And Father, I pray that dead and church are no longer used together. Lord, where there are sins that need to be confessed and repented of, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that we do that as we spend some time in prayer here in just a moment. I pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes to see some things in our own lives that have served as an obstacle, not only in our own personal lives, but as an obstacle into what you want to do here in the life of the church. I pray that we would come and confess and Say the same thing you say about this sin in our life. I pray we would all declare as one that we desire to be alive in Christ. Help us, Lord. Make us walk in this way, I pray, in these few days that we have remaining here on earth. Our lives are but a mist. We're here for a while and we're gone. And so, Lord, I pray that we would steward each day well for our great King. It's in your name we pray. Amen.